We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription, just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. This week, I'm talking to Ascender Maxstone Graham, whose new book, British Summertime Begins, The School Summer Holidays 1930 to 1980, has just been published by Little Brown. It's reviewed in this week's summer book supplement in the Church Times and is available for the reduced price of £17.10 from the Church Times bookshop. Isender has also written the lead article for our summer book supplement this week, in which she recalls the peculiarity of clergy families' summer arrangements. Isender, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Thank you, lovely to be here. First of all, in your article you write that while researching the book you spoke to, in particular, two vicars' daughters who had done vicarage swaps in their 1970s childhoods. Um, but this wasn't an ordinary home swap, was it? No, this was very much, I think it seemed to be the convention that, as I called it, cash-strapped clergy, which they were happily and proudly were, um, used to go and take over each other's jobs. Um, so uh, uh, the one, one Phoebe Fortescue, who was Phoebe Burridge, went from the vicarage in Ham down to Thanet, every summer for a few years and, and lived in the vicarage and the father took all the services and took over the whole running of the place in exchange for a seaside holiday and I suppose the other family came back to their house and it, this was was a dumb thing and I was trying to work out whether it was still a dumb thing. I see and, and the family who came back to their house would take on the duties in the parish there would they? Exactly for better and for worse um, and, and yes, there was quite a funny story that you know what, you tidied up you frantically tidied up your own vicarage in readiness for the other family and hoped that they were as tidy as you and often that was not the case you came back to your own vicarage and it was an absolute tip. For the priest involved it doesn't sound like much of a holiday. Exactly seem... as Eleanor Aldred said we were landed with all his problems and that wasn't much of a holiday and the Aldred family they were in Clearby Mortimer I think um, tried that vicarage swapping and eventually decided it was just too exhausting it wasn't a holiday it was a change rather than a rest and they started going to France instead um, just to get away from it all and listen to the cricket as they trundled through France. And I suppose one of the benefits of this arrangement would have been cost, I suppose, for cash-strapped clergy families, the, the whole exactly. thing. I... It was, I suppose, literally free. You just, uh, and, the, and the odd thing was, of course, you never met the other family. You just passed like ships in the night. So you got to know them intimately through their furniture, their choice of books, their, what was in their cupboards. <laughs> yes. You didn't ever meet them, which is a strange, a strange part of it. And um, I think you write that these sort of home swaps between clergy don't happen as much anymore, but Christian house swaps do. They do, and I'd love to know if this, I mean, I, I, I did some research, but I, I'd love to know if it, that ordinary old-fashioned 1960s, 70s, perhaps 1950s vicarage swapping thing does happen at all now. I think it happens to going abroad. You get chaplaincies abroad, don't you, going to in some southern Italy place um, where they, where they, to, to sort of cater for the expats and the, and the holidaymakers in, abroad. I think that still happens, but I'm not sure where they do. There are these Christian, yes, Christian house swaps, which, which um, seem to be going quite well, where you can swap you have to be certified Christians and, um, and, and you can sign up to swap your house, your little cottage in Oxfordshire for a cottage in, in Wales. Um, and that does happen as uh, I talked to Vivian Wells, Wills Crisp, who runs Tracks, which does this. And that seems to be, work quite well. Um, but I'm not quite sure of the fully fledged taking on the other person's 
admin baptisms, funerals thing still happens. I've got to get a sense that it's rather hedged around with safeguarding issues and um, insurance risks these days and not quite so simple as it was in those days just to say take over my vicarage for a week. I see. So that so the diocese might have something to say if the vicarage was going to be inhabited by a, a different family. Yeah, exactly. I think it wouldn't be quite so simple, um, but I, which is a pity because it was a wonderful free-flowing way of having a change and yeah, it seemed to work well. Yet one other, many other, many of the things that have been slightly wrecked by bureaucracy perhaps. I, so I suppose the, the phrase a change is as good as a rest comes to mind with these sorts of holiday arrangements, that the, the priest is still working, but at least it's in a different place. Exactly, it's very much so with the whole British going to take self-catering cottages where, as I described in my book, that the mother is still chained to the kitchen sink. Um, but at least it's a, there's a different view from the kitchen sink from her normal one. I mean, these are the 1960s descriptions of these un unrestful holidays, which are very much part of the British fabric and were much loved, in fact. You mentioned in the piece that among more Anglo-Catholic clergy you speak to, uh, many of them shuddered at the idea of a Christian house swap today. Why, why was that? <laughs> Something about the very word Christian can send shivers down the spine when it's sort of flagged up. <laughs> and I just yes, I suggested it, it had rather dreary connotations of sort of Puritanism and abstemiousness, which perhaps didn't quite go with the holiday spirit, where these Anglo-Catholics like to guzzle their good, good rosé or Italian wine on a piazza, rather and, and, and nip into an, a Catholic service and, and um, eat delicious, expensive foreign food then go to a Christian household in some drafty <laughs> bit of Britain. And, and you think evangelicals perhaps might prefer holidays in the UK? Well, exactly. I mean, I was, I did have this, I did write The Church Hesitant, which is a book in, came out in 1993, and I wondered whether this was rather a dated view, but very much that, the, you know, the, church, the evangelicals perhaps preferred to stomp up a Pennine. Um, but I think, you know, there is a bit of, still a little bit of truth in that. The, one, the evangelical people I spoke to in, for this article did send to say, oh, I, or I take my audio Bible and I go for walks along the canal and... And my dog and yeah wonderful but it's different definitely they're not they're not they're not in, in so much in italian piazzas and then the question of whether they go to church as well is another another question um do they or don't they yes i mean did, what what did you find regarding whether they go to church and so one one person i spoke to really, she, you know, really does who really has a rest and that's part of the holidays to actually not go to church i'm an important part of really rest and she says she can, she can pray as easily on a sun lounger as as in a church um others really love to go and explore the little church near their campsite or whatever and and sometimes double the congregation by by making it turning it from four to eight four to eight there's a mixture and i think um again um perhaps the more high, high church ones don't feel so strongly that they have to go to an anglican service when they're abroad they can jolly well go to a catholic one and yes go up for communion so that even if it's officially not not allowed oh you found <laughs> they would do that right well, yes, exactly. They, well, they would. And, and well, I must say, it's one of the questions I always ask, and I, I, I tend not to in, in France. I feel I'm, it would be a bit naughty. But anyway, the, the opinion's divided on that. And some say it's fine. And among the clergy who go to church, did you find that they make themselves known as clergy? I did, I did ask them that. And, and, and they, I think they like to stay a bit incognito during the service and then over the coffee or at the door have a quiet word. And, and I, I think. They, they do, t do tend to, 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 like to like to make themselves known, just as, a, as the natural urge to make friends and connect with people. It, it must be hard for sort of senior clergy who perhaps have a high profile. I'm thinking of some bishops who would be well known on site to, even on you know, holidaying in England to visit a church, because the priest taking the service would immediately recognise them and perhaps be a little bit, make them a bit nervous. 
That would be hard, and perhaps that's why that some they prefer to go perhaps to go to abroad more, so they can really get away from being recognised. Because that must be surely part of the holiday. Uh, yes. I spoke to two bishops in my book, actually. Um, yes, I spoke to two. Well, arch, ex-archbishop and new archbishop, um, Rowan Williams, who listened to Wagner all through his childhood <laughs> and changed his library book every single day rather than every single week. And um, Stephen Cottrell, who remembered happy journeys to family holidays in, in England, I think, listening, singing songs all the way, singing There Goes a Whiz Bang and I'm Henry VIII, I am, <laughs> in the back of the car with his parents, as so many did. I, I can imagine Rowan Williams and Stephen Cottrell are quite different sort of experiences of, of summer holidays as, as children. Well, not, that's not so different, actually, because there oh. one, was in Wales, one was in Essex and very, very much British and very low-key. Oh. Uh, I think that Rowan used to go in, the, his aunts had a car called Bing, um, and they used to nip, nip off to the, to the coast occasionally, but it wasn't certainly not, not glamorous. Just looking um, perhaps more broadly at, at the book, I'm just really interested as to what sort of prompted you to research this. Well, I wanted to interview really from living memory. My, my way of doing social history is really to talk to people and ask them their actual first, first-hand memories. And I thought it ought to phase out at 1980, just when I perhaps computers really started I was perhaps wrecking the, the, the childhood summer as we knew it, because there was a sudden soft boredom, there was a sudden thing to do. Whereas my book deals with being faced with, being faced with boredom every morning and how you transmuted it into invention, fun, adventure. And this is really looking not just at the holidays children went on, but that whole six to, I guess, nine week, depending on what school you're at, that, that summer holiday between mid-July and early September. It's that whole psychological feeling of the summer holidays I wanted to write about. So it's not about summer holidays, it's about the summer holidays, the book. And this is an important distinction. And how, how, did you, how did you spend that? How important it was to have that gaping amount of time in front of you where the thought of going back to school was just unimaginable. And in a way, your parents in those days didn't devote their summers to your entertainment. They, they really, you had to jolly well go and find your own. And it was fascinating talking to people. I had to chivvy it out a bit because I, my previous book was about girls' boarding schools. And that was much, people remember so vividly every single tiny aspect of that. With holidays, the very fact, it, it, it all can also easily go into a blur, blur of sort of cotton-wearing happiness, as I call it. And um, it, it's, you really have to just say, what did you actually do on Wednesday morning in, in early August? <laughs> and it was, it was lovely getting people to really think about the imaginary cricket matches they played against themselves um, or games with dice or terribly boring digital puzzles. I can imagine, um, I mean, I think for my, my young children who are sort of seven and four now, we think the summer holidays, we've got to get activities booked in, you know, football camp, art and crafts or whatever. But I guess then parents didn't quite think in that way, did they? As you say, children were left to sort of make their own entertainment and create. Well, that is, I mean, now you have to, as a parent, you have to sort of avoid screen addiction. And the way to do that is to plan, well, this week they're going to go on a camp, next week they're going to go on an orchestra course or whatever it is, or... And, and that is seems such a, such a pity because it, it's not the same when, when it's been booked and planned by a parent. The, the best, I mean, I think you really find out who you are. And this, this book is about finding out who you really are when you're not being hovered over by any adult, when you really just are left with a, you and a guitar and you somehow how to work out how to play it. You and a piano and you somehow work out how to play it. You and a ball and you somehow work out how to hit it with no one telling you, no one planning it, no one paying for it. And that's, I feel, it's, it's quite an elegiac book in that way. And I suppose children... In, in the period of time that you you researched, um, were often I mean, but parents, as you say, didn't hover over them. But I mean, often I think you write that they wouldn't necessarily know where the children were on a given day in the summer holidays. I mean, I think there was this thing of going over the back, out of the back, 
through the back garden, out beyond the back garden, into this world of meadows, hedges, streams, and woods, which I don't think, I really don't think happens so much anymore. I, 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 just, I say in the book, I go for lots of dog walks, and very, very rarely, if ever, have I seen a gaggle of children unattended playing in the woods, as used to happen all the time, so recently. Um, and, and exactly, I think well, the parents didn't know, where, didn't know where they went, didn't seem to worry, amazingly, because nowadays one would be worried sick and didn't know where the children were. And I don't think there were any, was any less danger, really, those days. You could still get abducted, run over. Um, but I think there just is more paranoia now. And, and perhaps people thought there was safety in numbers. If they're with their friends, they'll be all right. And the play, as for the playing in the street, I don't know whether yours play out in the street. Mine used to when they were very young and then it sort of dried up. Not really. It's more at the park. I mean, um, in the park, um, probably with, with you around, in a way, which is different, isn't it? Yes. Not just on your own. Uh, absolutely. I, I know so Lyle, Lyle Dennell in his review of the book in the Church Times um, writes mm. notes that there was a greater absence of materialism of making do with whatever one had at that time. And he says this was not just yes. the poor, but also <laughs> the upper class taste for the threadbare, which I think he quotes from your book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, I call it this whole chapter called The Lack of Luxury rather than The Lap of Luxury, um, which we just was absolutely ingrained into our whole being that you know there was a sweet tin and you were allowed one sweet after lunch you didn't have money in your pocket you didn't go to shops you didn't go into a, a typical day out I was meant going to somewhere in the fresh air that did not charge for entry you weren't going to expensive theatres and things all the time and I, I think and I'd like to think that in this in this coronavirus time we've sort of relearned that the joy of non-materialism because most of us couldn't go to any of those things we couldn't go to restaurants or cafes we've had to learn to take our own sandwiches on any outing which is going to be an outing out of doors because that's the only place you can go. And of course, I mean, looking at the specific, some the actual holidays people go on, whether in the UK or abroad, for, for many this year, that won't be possible. Um, will that be quite sad? Well, exactly. Because I mean, I did write this article a few weeks ago before they, before they allowed foreign travel. So that might be dated since I spoke to this very nice female vicar who is, was saying she'd be devastated not to be able to go to France this year so let's hope that that has changed since changed because for her it's absolutely pivotal to refresh recharging her batteries and maybe that has changed since i wrote the piece about three I and mean, things change overnight these days don't they oh. that was just three weeks ago i wrote that piece or something and that's and it's all changed but um perhaps there will be more stay, stay, staying in britain just for, for general fear of the virus this summer and we might discover our love of obscure british beaches you also write in the book about you were looking to examine how did those summers form us and shape the way we live the rest of our lives um that seems a very interesting question. What, what did you discover about that? That some holidays really were formative for people? I think they really were. When I look at people over 50s, I think, gosh, you lived through one of those summers. You lived through one of those summers. Perhaps for anybody over 40, you lived through that. You, you, you became the person you are today through that resilience you built up, through being through sort of benign neglect and through people just not hovering over you all your childhood. You, you perhaps really read your way through the Georgette Hare or your father's library or just became extremely good at some obscure games such as cat's cradle or ping pong or tennis um you, you somehow just learnt to stand on your own two feet i mean there were people who didn't see who were quite lonely in the summer and, and i did speak to some there's a whole chapter on called yourself people you were stuck with one of them being yourself who just didn't see people weeks on end and they learned to they got resilient from learning to go into themselves and just have their own inner resources so i feel these uh, it, it is it is they are they are it did they did form us yes and I wonder how these are, this next generation is going to be formed in different ways. They'll be, they'll be very good at the things they want on courses to do. And they'll be very well travelled. But will they know their own neighbourhood? Will they know every little alley of their own neighbourhood? As, as we did. I'm assuming the nature of the friendships you formed during that. If, if you're learning to sort of 
play and make your own entertainment and deal with boredom, it must produce quite a different friendship with someone yeah. than if you're yeah. on a course. Yes, exactly. You're just stuck with it. And often the people of different ages actually have someone's annoying younger sister and, or, or one older brother and all sort of stuck together in this strange disparity of ages. And, and it can, it's, it's very good for elast elasticating people's um, ability to interact with others of different ages. And, and I do feel there were these strange gaggles that just somehow formed around streets or two or three houses next door to each other where ridiculous games i mean an old a sort of pile of melted old melted tarmac could have become a sort of hillock from which you cycled which you cycled down or made a puddle beneath and cycled over or in, i mean a lot of rolling up melted tar into balls went on i mean just these pointless things happened with these strange gaggles of gaggles of children i do think it is a, is a real change of how our country used to be from how it is now that there's just these loose bands of children I remember this film called Emil and the Detectives, that German film 19, in the mid-1930s. And it, my son used to love watching it because it just suggested it had this sort of troop of boys just let loose in Berlin and how wonderful that was. And it never, it doesn't, doesn't seem to happen now. And of course, with such a lot of time to fill up in the summer holidays, I guess many people were sent to their grandparents to stay. Yes, exactly. For lots I spoke to, that was going to stay with Granny was the only form of travel in the summer because they couldn't afford holidays. But going to Granny's did become a, a very, very important part of childhood. Sort of going away to these people whose houses you knew intimately and, and loved, and they were just different from your own house. And this usually kind, often rather eccentric old lady took you over and, and, and I think provided another layer of stability for, for children. And often, sometimes the mother went to stay with the Granny as well. And, and then even she, in her turn, was having, was having that stability from her parents. So there were sort of triple layers of stability going on there. And it was a very important part of, of childhood summers. One did have very strange theories. What one said, you must not, you got to swim until two days after you arrived to stay with me. I and mean, there were some very strange grandparental theories hanging around. So I think, you know, that there are, they were a strange lot. These old, the, old, the older generation in those days were Victorians, some of them, who were stuck with their very strange theories. And just finally, did you find from the people you interviewed that the, the friendships they formed during those long summer holidays lasted? Um, I think they probably did, unless people, you know, moved away. I mean, that, that, but there's a they, I mean, I did speak to people who are still the best friends of the person they played with all the summers of the 1930s. One person, they, the father was a schoolmaster, so they sort of had the run of the school ground all summer. And she and her little friend Janet played together all summer, and they'd been friends until their 80s. So I do think these friendships are, you know, they, these people know you better than, any, better than anybody else apart from your siblings. And of course, there's lots in the book about sibling pinching, punching, rivalry, you know, because it wasn't all plain sailing at all. There was, there were, you know, being stuck with your siblings is no laughing matter sometimes for months on end. Um, but, the, but at least you know these people very, very deeply and very well and have lots of shared jokes, shared memories. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.